The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, and ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key, not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. Good afternoon, everyone, and thanks for taking the time to tune in to the program. This is Joe Schuldenrein, and this is, in fact, the final installment in our pilot series, Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. Yep, that's right, final episode for the pilot series. I can almost hear the violins in the background and sense the crocodile tears of our devoted listenership. However, the good news is the watchword pilot series. We've been renewed for at least another half-year run by Voice America, based on apparently very successful survey numbers, and I'd like to extend my appreciation to all of you who have found the show invigorating, if not provocative. And I'm thrilled to have the opportunity to promote the message of 21st century archaeology going forward and to let you in on what's happening in this field. Again, our message is that archaeology, while exciting and somewhat glamorous in the vein of Indiana Jones, is nevertheless a productive field and one that calls attention to contemporary issues as well. In that vein, I'd like to introduce my topic for the present program, Early Peopling of the West Coast of North America. This is a subject, the peopling of North America certainly, that we touched upon earlier. It has implications for understanding not only how, when, and where people arrived on the continent, but also teaches us lessons on ancient environments and human survival. This link between ecological systems and the human condition has clear lessons going forward, most directly because the link between human survival and environmental sustainability is a topic that is at the forefront of the debate on climate change and indeed determines the steps we must all take in assessing the ways in which our children and future generations will survive on this planet. Today's theme concerns new theories in the peopling of the West Coast. We now know that early settlements along the West Coast were linked and, and elsewhere were linked to changes in climate during the end of the Ice Age around 18,000 to 14,000 years ago. And the uh, waning phases of that as they extend to about 12, 11,000 years ago and the associated transitions in sea level rise. The earliest human arrivals occurred sometime thereafter during the waning station, sta uh, stages of what's now known as the Pleistocene, what has been known as the Pleistocene for actually for a long time, I'm sorry, and the initial stages of the modern geological era, which we call the Holocene. That was the time when sea level rose because of the melting of the glaciers. And what happened next? Well, 
That's when people showed up on the coast. My guests who will discuss the latest theories on how, when, and why people began to populate these terminal Pleistocene and early Holocene landscapes are Lauren Davis, Matthew Delorier, and Amy Gusek. Lauren Davis is an associate professor of anthropology at Oregon State University. He received his Ph.D. in anthropology from the University of Alberta in 2001 and joined Oregon, Oregon State University in 2004. He's the executive director of the Keystone Archaeological Research Fund and the director of the Pacific Slope Archaeological Laboratory at Oregon State University. Through those entities, Dr. Davis pursues research questions related to the initial peopling of the New World, focusing on Western North America. Lauren has conducted archaeological investigations in the Pacific Northwest and in Northwest Mexico's Baja California Peninsula. He directs an archaeological research program each summer in western Idaho at the Cooper's Ferry site, which contains an early record of Western stem tradition occupations. Matthew Delorier is a associate professor of anthropology and director of anthropological research institute at california state university northridge he's conducted research in baja california since 2000 focusing primarily on the island of ilacedros located off the pacific coast of the peninsula working with scholars from the instituto nacional de antropologia e historia de mexico uh, Oregon State University and the University of California, Irvine. Dr. Deloria has documented a rich archaeological record stretching from historic period otter hunters and miners to the very earliest colonization of Baja, California. His projects uh, include uh, documenting the indigenous history of Baja, California, and he has challenged models of indigenous social organization and research management and uh, has pushed back the colonization of the California coast to over 12,000 years ago. Uh, Amy Gusick is a Ph.D. candidate in the Department of Anthropology at the University of California, Santa Barbara. Her uh, discipline is uh, in art, her disciplinary interest is archaeology is a research focus on maritime Pacific Rim hunter-gatherers. She's broadly interested in the underlying reasons for behavioral variation in uh, coastal hunter-gatherers, and she is actively engaged in research on Santa Cruz Island on, on a submerged landscape in the southern Gulf of California off of Baja California. Thank you so much, all of you, for participating. Thank you. Yep. Thank you very much, Joe. Glad to have you here. Uh, let's begin with with uh, a topic that I think we should uh, segue into the actual archaeological manifestations of all of this. And what uh, what I'd like to point out is, and, and what I'd like to address, uh, basically from Lauren's perspective, is how have our positions changed on the migrations of people from Western Asia through what was known as the uh, ice-free corridor in the west, in the western part of the continent and in the eastern part of the continent. And now we're talking about actual direct populations, population, peopling actually along the coastlines. How has that uh, theory been challenged in the past decade? Well, initially, uh, the traditional view of how the Americas was initially populated um, goes something like this, that we have people in Northeast Asia at the end of the last ice age, and as sea level is much reduced as glaciers are growing, you know, the water budget to build glaciers the size of Canada and, and Greenland and places like this requires a lot of water out of the ocean, and as a result, you get net loss in the ocean, and that starts to expose a lot of 
extra shoreline and land masses that aren't very uh, deeply submerged. So you could walk from Siberia to what's now Alaska uh, sometime during the end of the last ice age. So, you know, after uh, 24,000 years ago or so. And the idea is that people probably moved uh, during this window of time uh, and they migrated into what's now Alaska and Yukon Territory in Canada, and that there was a an, an obstruction of the Canadian ice sheets that would have kept them from being able to move out of the far northern position of North America. And then later in time, as we start to move from a glacial environment to a post-glacial environment, the glacial ice sheets that were on Canada began to reduce and open up a gap between an ice sheet that was sitting on the Rocky Mountains versus a, uh, an ice sheet that was situated over Hudson Bay. And this north-south gap has been known as the ice-free corridor. And the idea is that people would have been able to move from the Arctic down into mid-latitude North America, or what's pretty much now the United States, exiting out of a gap in the ice in eastern Montana and spreading throughout the New World. So <clears throat> this model... Although it's difficult to test these things directly, it was at least intellectually satisfying that it could explain how you move a group of people from the old world to the new world and then everywhere else in the North, South, and Central American continents. Um, but one of the problems, though, that starts to show up in terms of the inadequacy of this model alone to explain the peopling of the new world is that the archaeological record that we have uh, especially in South America, doesn't quite match this because what we now know is that glacial ice between the Rocky Mountains and the rest of Canada, you know, the Hudson Bay ice sheet I was mentioning, they appear to be closed. That is, it's coalesced and it's closed off this ice-free corridor during a time period when it needs to be open to explain people moving down into North America, Central America, South America. So, Specifically, uh, we're talking about the Monte Verde site of South America. It has radiocarbon dates around 12,400 years uh, ago, and the ice-free corridor appears to be um, closed until uh, around maybe as early as uh, 12,200 or a little bit after 12,500. So unless they're going to run at a dead sprint from Yukon to Chile, uh, right and really not leave a lot of material behind uh, for us to find. It, it requires another explanation. So that's a, little, that's a kind of a long setup. But the idea is that if that model isn't explaining everything, we need something else. So in the 20th century, people had talked at different times about well, perhaps people could have come down around the ice, and if they did such a thing, they could have migrated very easily uh, along a coastal margin. But the idea was that that was an inhospitable place blocked off by ice that had grounded itself on the continental shelf offshore. It would have been impassable. But in the latter part of the 20th century, we began to learn a lot more about what that environment was really like. And it became clear that it wasn't that inhospitable. Uh, in fact, there appeared to be large areas that weren't actually glaciated at all during some certain parts. That began to set up at least the possibility of the coastal route, as it's known, the coastal route of migration could be something that we should be putting our attention to. So, Lauren, let's backtrack for a second. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what these recent advances were in terms of the science 
that allowed us to visualize these transitions as being a little bit different from the traditional model because certainly the one that I was taught in, in grad school was the ice-free corridor was the only way. So what are we looking at in terms of research and what are we looking at in terms of the science that allows us to posit a different route? So I guess conceptually you can think about this as an argument based on um, opportunity or constraint. So it seems that uh, the ice represents a major player in terms of uh, the gatekeeper of allowing people to move from the north to the south. And so what kind of expanded our knowledge about this was more geologic work that shed light on the position of the ice sheet uh, at, at greater sensitivity at time. So the Geological uh, Survey of Canada has published a series of maps that are quite nice that show where the ice is at 500-year time slices. And you can kind of view it as a movie moving Know, at 500-year uh, swaths, and that kind of information coupled with a greater appreciation of studying the past environments of southeastern Alaska, British Columbia, into Washington and Oregon, I began to realize, we began to realize as a result of these, this kind of work that it wasn't such a harsh place after all. In fact, one of the best indicators of whether it could be possible for people to live in that Pacific Rim next to ice was the presence of animals in fossil records like bears. And bear fossils began to be found in caves and other kinds of sites, paleontological sites at least, uh, up and down from Alaska to um, British Columbia. And the idea is that if bears can make it in this environment, so can we. So what we're looking at is really a variety of different types of sources of evidence that are showing us based on the sophisticated mapping that we have of the glacial margins and of the ancient landscapes and the topography and the elevations that would have made it really much more possible than we thought earlier for people to make these, these large-scale movements. Let's move over for a second to... Uh, uh, to Matt, and, and can you give us some indications archaeologically on what we're seeing in terms of artifacts themselves and in terms of, of the actual types of features that archaeologists traditionally look at to give us indications of, of, of where these artifacts are coming from and how old they are? Well, uh, first of all, one of the interesting things that, well, as Lauren was mentioning, we often see associated with this ice-free corridor model is its historical uh, and, and archaeological uh, association with the Clovis complex from the central part of the continent, which I think you had uh, some people from an earlier program uh, speaking at length about. One of the interesting things about that evidence is that because in the history of research in North America, it was the first time that archaeologists had been able to definitively demonstrate human presence dating back to the Ice Age because of its association with extinct mammoth and bison. Uh, it really acquired a, a very prominent role in our concept of who these people were. These Clovis points and Folsom points, these Paleo-Indian spear points, almost became iconic for representing our definition of how we recognize the evidence for early peopling. And I think in many instances... There have been uh, sites, or in, in some cases, uh, in the case of uh, uh, Arlington Springs on Santa Rosa Island, that were not recognized as being uh, terminal Pleistocene in age, simply because uh, they lacked an association with these big game hunting weaponry. 
and I think uh, in the interior of the continent, you you find that still seems to be a fairly consistent association uh, between these fluted points and, and big game. But I think one of the things that the new research that we're finding at places like uh, along the northwest coast, uh, there at Cooper's Ferry, um, along the Baja California Peninsula, at Paisley Cave uh, in Oregon, is that there seem to be more that there seem to be multiple traditions uh, that are contemporary with one another, and so the archaeological record is actually showing us a much more complicated picture of human movement than the one route, one group of people, you know, a small band of hunters showing up at the southern end of the ice sheet and radiating out from there. It, it appears to be a very complicated pattern of human population movement. And one of the reasons why I think that is is that the new evidence coming out from some of the genetic studies and other things indicate that the populations that Lauren was talking about moving from eastern Siberia into Beringia, uh, which is sort of the combined Alaska and eastern Siberian region when the sea level is lower, those populations weren't just kind of passing through. We've often talked about it as, oh, it's a land bridge, and we get this image of people kind of tiptoeing across and getting their ankles wet. But it was this huge landmass, and these people occupied that whole area for thousands of years before sea levels began to rise. And so some of the first people that would have been displaced by the ecological collapse precipitated by their particular episode of global warming um, were essentially people not necessarily trying to get to Chile, not necessarily trying to go on some sort of land rush, but they were in fact driven out of homes that they had occupied for thousands of years. And people often try to find familiar places, or if they can't find familiar places, they'll try to follow um, lifeways that they're familiar with. And it stands to reason that given the size of Beringia, you're going to have some people that are living on the coast and some people that are living in the interior. And you're going to have different groups of people with different traditions and different technologies trying to find new homes where those are applicable. And so I think rather than this uh, sort of very limited view that we had that involved the ice-free corridor, what the archaeological record is telling us is that it was a fairly large-scale population movement involving many different groups that were bringing with them different traditions and different technologies uh, that allowed them to make use of different resources. And, and on that note, uh, let me just cut you off for a second. Yeah. I think you're touching on some very interesting stuff, but unfortunately we're going to have to go to break. And uh, we will resume this discussion on the archaeological basis for interpreting change at the closing phases of the Pleistocene and the beginnings of colonization of the New World on the west side of the continent when we get back after these messages. Thank you. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Explore the power and beauty in yourself and in others. Tune in to The Stacey Stern Show, enriching you. 
Every week, Stacy Stern will connect you with men and women who are living and working from a place of passion. Stacy's guests include successful authors, filmmakers, actors, experts, and leaders. You'll hear what inspires each of them, and you'll be turned on to great films, books, and new media. Tune in to the Stacy Stern Show, enriching you, Tuesdays at noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. It's all about action. Scores. Taking a look at the NBA tonight. Highlights. He's broken loose. He's at the 30. And headlines. Big trade in the NFL this afternoon. When you are looking to talk sports, look no further than the Voice America Sports Network. We bring you some of the biggest names and all the sports news you can handle. Whether it's basketball. Off the glass. Football. Come on. Golf. Racing. Or the Olympics. We've got you covered. We'll even cover tailgating. Tune in to the Voice America Sports Network. It's all things sports. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra-goarc.com. Now, back to the program. Okay, we're back uh, to the program. Uh, Joe Schuldenrein, uh, Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. And um, we have been discussing the uh, changes in contemporary archaeological theory that uh, the ice-free corridors that were traditionally associated with the migrations of people into the New World and their subsequent settlement is not the only theory that, that we're going on, and we've discussed both the geological basis for that with the disappearance of the glaciers, the rising of sea level, and the distribution of archaeological sites on what used to be the continental shelf and, and, and the rising sea level uh, changing our interpretations of where sites were, and we shifted then to discussions of the archaeological record itself. I was talking to Matt about the archaeological evidence of these types of changes. Uh, Matt, I just one one more point that 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 has really become sort of a hot button issue is the transition in archaeological assemblages from the old world to the new world. Uh, in your estimation, as an archaeologist, uh, are you seeing any continuity between? archaeological assemblages from the old world and the new world? Well, uh, the interesting issue of, of some of the similarities in projectile points and, and bifaces I think is, is a difficult one to really put any kind of test to because 
at the end of the day, um, a spear point has a couple of design constraints. It has to be pointy at one end and attached to uh, the shaft of a spear at the other end. And so some of these similarities are going to be pretty much uh, easily reproducible from, from situation to situation. But one of the things that I think we have found with particularly the work that uh, Lauren and myself and some of the Mexican archaeologists like Harumi Fujita and others have uh, found in, in Baja California is that there's this marine focus on resources, but they're also exploiting deer and rabbits and other and smaller uh, terrestrial resources and even some of the uh, plant resources that we have evidence for. And so while we're changing the perspective from the big game hunters following the mammoth through the ice-free corridor to a more sophisticated model, all of our evidence suggests that they're not highly specialized Aleut-style maritime hunter-gatherers. They're flexible, broadly prepared colonizing groups that can take advantage of whatever opportunities present themselves and overcome challenges as, as well. And so they don't have this narrow resource or ecological range. We have some of the uh, oldest fish hooks in the New World. We have evidence for the use of nets. Uh, but it's, it's very much a, a broad subsistence base. And if you sit down and think about it from a human ecological perspective, it makes sense that those groups that were able to take advantage of the widest range of resources and reproduce their technologies from whatever stone happened to be available, those would have been the groups that would, would have been most effective at moving the most quickly and colonizing more rapidly rather than groups that had very specific requirements. And Interesting. I think that really is the, ev the evidence that we have from the peninsula is really neat because it's not something that uh, is, is either uh, unique to Baja California. There are many parallels with the South American data sets that we have. There are parallels with stuff from the northwest coast. And we're even beginning to see inklings of parallels in some of the technologies with uh, areas of the Pacific Rim uh, on the western side of the Pacific as opposed to uh, this side. Uh, that suggest a greater amount of technological and ecological knowledge uh, continuing through this process, but one that I think really prepared people for, um, as, as I was saying, taking advantage of any opportunity uh, that presented itself rather than seeing new challenges as a barrier, they were able to overcome them. Okay. Uh, Amy, tell us a little bit about uh, your research and how you're looking at the changes in the artifacts themselves and how they demonstrate a, sort of a very particular type of change or adaptation to a changing environment. Uh, sure. Well, my, my research specifically focuses on a time period a little bit after um, what we're talking about. So the initial uh, peopling in some of these you know, early sites that we're talking about are dating into the late Pleistocene. My research actually kind of focuses on the time period that's directly um, after that, which is really policy from about 8,500 to say about 10,000, 10,500 years ago. Um, and so what, what I'm specifically seeing with, um, with my research is that, you know, as, as Matt was saying, is where, you know, you see these, these really kind of mobile hunter-gatherers come into the country, they're really kind of adapting to this environment and really using everything that's available. They have a, a number of different technologies. And, um, you know, we actually see this kind of continuing 
on um, through the archaeological record um, from these late Pleistocene sites, you know, through the next few thousand years, we see a heavy reliance on uh, shellfishing, particularly, um, which is something obviously you don't need a lot of technology to do. But the sites that we have are just really kind of chock full of tons of, you know, California mussel and um, you know, these, these kinds of shellfish. Uh, we have a lot of fishing. We definitely see uh, we have you know, bone fish hooks, uh, bone gorges, which is really a form of fish hook. Um, as Matt mentioned, there's of course evidence of um, really net fishing, um, using sea cordage for um, uh, uh, seagrass, possibly uh, fishing line cordage. Uh, something else that we uh, that's interesting that we have uh, we found a number of these on the Northern Channel Islands, specifically on Santa Cruz Island and also on San Miguel Island, are these very small Channel Island barbed. And originally, these were uh, markers that were found in some of these late sites that seemed really all of these sites, and the, they kind of became a, a marker for these, these early, early sites, these early, these early peoples. And we were a little bit confused as to what they would be used for. They're very small. They're very finely flaked. Um, they're, you know, relatively fragile. Um, uh, but okay. most, recently, uh, most recently, there was actually a number of late sites found um, in article in science by uh, John Erland. On a, a three um, late Pleistocene sites on San Miguel, and also uh, two on San Miguel, one on Santa Rosa, and he found a number of these uh, of these little these little points, um, and a lot of bird bone points. Which we think now they also have been kind of focusing on bird as well. Um, so it just really kind of emphasizes this uh, reliance on kind of this broad spectrum diet. They're you know fishing, they're um, you know hunting birds, um, or really really whatever they can get out of this really abundant environment that that they live. Okay, um, that's interesting, and, and I think one of the issues that, that you're sort of skirting around, which is, is, is really kind of important, is uh, the actual changes in the environment that are related to both sea level rise and the rate of sea level rise. Uh, Lauren, why don't you take us through a little bit of the chronology of how sea level rates and patterns changed over the course of the past, say, 14,000 years from the end of the Pleistocene into the early phases of the Holocene and the subsequent slowing of sea level rise, which we certainly see in a lot of parts of, of, of the Atlantic coast uh, after 6,000 years ago. Give us a little bit of information on the chronology. Okay. Well, I had mentioned before you know, the relationship between sea level and ice, glacial ice. And as we move from a glacial environment to a post-glacial environment, uh, as you can imagine, we start to see a rise in sea level. As that water is returned from being locked up in glacial ice into the ocean, global sea level begins to rise. And this way of measuring it is kind of a uh, an approach that you can talk about at a global scale. So it's not relative to what the land is doing. It's just relative to the water going up and down like in a bathtub. So uh, from roughly um, at the end of last ice age, right? You know, 18,000 years ago to uh, 4,000 years ago, we have a very dramatic rise in sea level. After about 4,000 years ago, it's pretty much stabilized, and there's real minor movement uh, at a global level. But So we're talking about a movement of uh, about 300 feet, uh, 135 meters, uh, in, in a vertical movement from its low stand at glacial maximum to about 4,000 years ago. So depending on where you are, uh, on the coast that can produce profound changes in the way that the geography of the coastal margin will appear. So where I am at in Oregon, we actually have a very low gradient 
uh, continental shelf that goes offshore of us. So in some parts of our coast, uh, we lost about 30 miles of extra coast from the end of the last ice age to uh, its arriving at its modern position. So we have to think about that as territory that once was available for prehistoric peoples to occupy, and they, they did so. We have no reason to think they wouldn't. That would be the best places to be living on the coast. And But as a result, we also have to think about that not only has that landscape changed dramatically, but any archaeological sites relating to people living in that environment are also out there uh, underwater. And so it kind of biases our view when we look at the coastal sites at our left. You know, they do relate to basically the ocean arriving in its modern position. Anything we see older than 4,000 years or so on coastal margins, at least in Oregon, um, will tell us about people using what we call inland attractions. So coming in from the coast, doing other things, hunting animals, but probably not doing things directly related to the coastal margin. It's near the coast, but not exactly. They're not shell fishing and walking them in 10 miles, let's say. That's not what we expect. So uh, in terms of what that's going to do in other parts of the world, it really depends on the shape of the ocean floor near you. And uh, another factor that we have to think about uh, in some parts of the world is the presence of glacial ice has a big effect. It actually compressed the Earth's crust uh, to a degree that as it melted and released, it begins to move up relative to the coast. So in some parts of the world, that's really dramatic. So in, in uh, Pacific Canada, we see really big vertical movements of islands during the same time the sea level is coming up, and some of it's still moving today. Uh, other parts of, of the coast experience not glacial movement so much, but there's also tectonic movement. So off of Oregon's coast also, we have a subduction zone, which uh, produces massive earthquakes like we saw recently with the Japanese tsunami. And it does this on a periodicity of roughly every 600 years on average. So during the time period that we're talking about of people potentially coming in at the end of the last ice age to today, people may have experienced dramatic movements, earthquakes, things like this, tsunamis, up to 24 times or more. So it's an extremely dynamic coastal environment over the long period of time, and it makes it very challenging for us to find sites and work on them, but also would have created some very dynamic living environments for people in the past. In the past. Well, I think you've, you've, you've hit on something that's really critical. And people who do coastal studies, and certainly from what Lauren's perspective is, from the geo-archaeological perspective, there is universally, almost all over the world, a slowing of the rate of sea level rise around 6,000 to 4,000 years ago. Lauren indicated that in the, in the West Coast, it's pretty firmly established, I think, on you, based on what you're saying, at around 4,000 or no? Um, it depends what model you want to use, but, you know, a common one is, I'm looking at one now, it's, you know, a little bit after 4,000, 3,500 years, it's pretty much at the position you look out the window on the beach, and that's pretty much how it's looked for 3,000 years or so, 4,000 years. Interesting. Well, and it, we, we do have some high-resolution curves. Uh, we've done one in the New York Harbor area very recently that are indicating that it's a little earlier over there, probably related to a variety of different types of tectonic forces that are uh, extending that time frame to about 
five and a half thousand, six thousand years ago. But the general model is certainly within that time frame, the uh, middle Holocene and to later Holocene, that we're starting to get uh, a leveling off, if it were, as it were, on uh, the rates of sea level rise, and not not uh, insignificantly, the distribution of the archaeology starts to proliferate and gets much more abundant, and uh, we're starting to see sort of settlement models and, and archaeological site complexes that are starting to approximate the modern distributions very much so. But uh, certainly in, in the part of the world that you guys are working on, you've gotten very high-resolution models on when the islands formed and, and, and how the evolution of those landscapes occurred. Matt, can you give us a little bit of a perspective on when your, your research area uh, started to sort of separate from the mainland and, and, and what you can tell us about that? Sure. Um, well, this is uh, work that uh, Lauren and I have done in conjunction on many of these aspects. But uh, so, if if I uh, err, Lauren, please jump in. Uh, but uh, basically, it seems that Isla Cedros was uh, attached to the mainland sometime during the the glacial maximum, and that it separated from the mainland very shortly after that. Part of the reason that we're fairly confident in this tenuous connection is that there are no burrowing rodents on Cedros. There's not even any terrestrial predators, no foxes, no coyotes, not even any badgers. Um, and yet we have deer and rabbits uh, that have been on the island at least since the terminal Pleistocene and are still there today. Uh, so you have their uh, a, a continuity, but... Uh, Clearly, this, this connection did not last very long, and it was probably not a very high connection, probably even damp at high tide, I would imagine. And once it separated, it actually, because of the very, very steep bathymetry surrounding the island, the, the depth of the ocean in the waters around the island, uh, it actually reached a recognizable outline uh, by about 7,500 years ago. There's one spot on the east side of the island where within a hundred yards of shore it's 23 fathoms deep and a fathom being six feet so uh, this, the drop-off is very very steep and so as Lauren was saying depending upon the particular region that you're looking at uh, sea level rise is going to shape the landscape in more dramatic ways uh, for different time periods when you have those low gradient Oregonian coastlines uh, it's going to be a more, it's uh, a longer process before you get something that's recognizable as today's landscape. But Isla Cedros was pretty much uh, easily identifiable um, as as a general shape uh, by about 7,500 years ago. And but when did really, it split off from? The, when did it split off from the it mainland? It split off from the mainland sometime between 14 and 13,000 years ago. So right around the time that the first people would have been moving into the Americas. One of and what's your evidence for that? Um, well, because uh, we have uh, the evidence for the connections uh, of the bathymetry using a, a map, a topographic map of the sea bottom, and uh, using a number of different curves that have been generated by oceanographers for when uh, sea level was at a particular stage, and we basically... Uh, just ran that in reverse, and so we would lower sea level and lower sea level and sea uh, where the modern bottom uh, indicated there would have been dry land. Obviously, there have been changes to 
the bottom of the, the ocean between the Pleistocene and today, but as a first approximation, it seems that between about 14 and 13,000 years ago, uh, it was separated. What's really amazing about this is that what we're looking at is a place where human beings occupied uh, these islands before they, or these, these locations all along the Baja California Peninsula, occupied these locations before they looked like they did today, before those environments were the environments that we would recognize today. And especially in the current context that we're looking at in our, our lives, in our day, with climate change being probably the biggest issue of the 21st century, we're able to look at the record from the terminal Pleistocene and early Holocene. And because we have these records of human occupation in these regions, where you have this dramatic change in environment and ecology and landscape, it can give us some very relevant information about the human relationship to a changing and dynamic environment. One, one perfect example is that uh, we have shellfish species that change. I, I'm going to ask you to hold that thought because we have to go sure. back to break, but we will take up in a couple of uh, seconds, actually, a couple of, in a minute or so, and we will get back to discussing the changing landscapes and archaeological uh, foundations of the islands off the coast of California when we come back. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. Yeah! If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Step into the doorway to conscious choice, greater health, and well-being. Attain the balance that you've been seeking. Tune in and turn on 1111 Talk Radio. Feed the mind. Embrace positively. Release the tension. Step out of fear. Host Simran Singh will help you broaden your mind and open your heart toward a greater understanding of how to take charge of your life. 1111 Talk Radio is here every Thursday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Time on 7th Wave Network. 1111 Talk Radio. Because shift happens. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business talk. Go behind the scenes of what you see, hear, and read on the news. Learn the ins and outs of public relations on Stars of PR with Cindy R. Every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time. Cindy Rakowitz is a Clio Award winner and founder of Rock and Roll Public Relations who wants to share her PR experiences and knowledge with you. Learn how to handle a crisis, deal with celebrities, and become a terrific PR executive. Listen to the Stars of PR with Cindy Cindy R. Every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time here on News Talk Radio, VoiceAmerica.com. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Thank you. 
listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra-goarc.com. Now, back to the program. Thanks very much. We're back on our program, Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeologist. I have three wonderful guests with me today. Uh, Lauren Davis, a geoarchaeologist, and two archaeologists, uh, Matt Delorier and Amy Gusick, who are discussing variety of elements related to the, er- the settlement, earliest settlement of the West Coast. And we were talking about the, uh, the islands in California, how, that evolved subsequent to the melting of the glaciers and their evolution as sort of unique entities with very distinctive records of archaeology. Uh, Matt, I, I was wondering if you could pick up a little bit more on how the uh, the cultural uh, adaptations changed on the islands and what the archaeological records tell us about uh, in that vein. One of the things that I think is particularly interesting is that some areas have very, very distinctive traditions. This uh, tradition that uh, Amy was describing from the northern Channel Islands with those very tiny, uh, delicately made projectile points. I'm not aware of uh, a similar kind of tradition being found for this antiquity anywhere else along the coast. And so in, in a very clear example, you've got a very distinctive tradition emerging in that place. Isla Cedros, on the other hand, the early record that we have there actually ties it into a very broad pattern that we're seeing, not only in the Baja California Peninsula, but in a lot of areas throughout uh, the West. And Lauren and I have actually um, worked on this, this subject, where we're trying to talk about these early traditions. And um, he, he may be able to uh, address some of this too in terms of talking about how do we construct these broad regional views because I think one of the problems that sometimes happens in archaeology is that when we have one research area we kind of get a little bit of tunnel vision and we can't see the forest for the trees. Um, I think that's a critical point and, and one of the issues that I would raise in this regard is how is the geography of these islands, the Ilicedros and the Channel Islands, how do they explain the different types of, of cultural traditions that are emerging uh, separately in these areas? Lauren, you want to take a crack at that one? Uh, well, I'll take a crack at that. I mean, if you think about just from the geographic point of view, I mean, they do represent... Um, kind of a spatial extension of people being able to get out into parts of the marine ecosystem that you can't normally get to. I mean, if you have a boat, of course, you can paddle out and spend some time away from, you know, just a normal coastline. But when you have an island, I mean, this literally represents a station out there. And islands, of course, are, um, by definition, I suppose, hard parts in the island. They're resistant to erosion mostly and they represent these kind of ecosystemic anchors. And you get very distinct ecosystems developing around them. And from what we're seeing on these islands, and Amy, of course, can talk about this for Channel Islands and Matt for Isla Cedros, but very distinctive foci of people doing things in relation to the ecosystems they're living in. And they're pretty different as you go up and down. And as you get up into where I'm at in Oregon and the northwest coast, into Canada we and Alaska we have islands, of course. Um, but... 
where I'm at, we don't have islands so much. We have rocks, more like them. They're pretty small offshore. And so we have mostly straight coast. Uh, but when sea level is much lower, we have a lot of other dramatic uh, geographic developments that we don't have any analogies for. So we have large bays. We have huge rivers out on coastal plains that we don't see today. So we're still trying to get our minds wrapped around the idea of what is this landscape like and what did it offer people of the past? Because you can't look at the modern analogy of our coast and understand that world, right? Interesting. Um, Amy, give us a little bit of perspective on the underwater world, because I understand that you've done some exploration underneath the water, and is that giving you any indications on how these islands evolved and 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 uh, what the relationship is between the rate of change in the landscape and, 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 and what kind of materials you're actually finding archaeologically? What are you finding under the water? Right. Well, the the issue with conducting underwater archaeological research is it's extremely hard. Um, it's essentially like trying to find a needle in a haystack. So, you know, what what the main problems surrounding this, and particularly with when you're talking about peopling in the New World, specifically, you know, via this coastal route, um, and this is something that's come up kind of continually, continually in this show, is that we have this issue of sea level rise. So, as, you know, coastal archaeologists studying these early peoples, our land, our research area essentially doesn't just stop at the coast because, you know, it extended out typically much further than that, you know, 10, 15,000 years ago. Uh, so as a result, um, we are trying to locate, Lauren and I specifically, I have a project actually in uh, Baja, down in Baja, California, on an island called, on a uh, water surrounding an island called Isla Espirito Santo. And what we're essentially trying to do is map the underwater environment, kind of the nearshore underwater environment off of this island to understand the, uh, partly to understand the coastal processes that have happened since the late Pleistocene to try to figure out where we can actually locate these late Pleistocene landscapes that were above sea level um, and, you know, habitable during, uh, during kind of the initial peopling of the New World. So the challenges with that are, you know, you have... Uh, you know, episodes of deposition, you could have uh, this late, late Pleistocene landscape that could be buried under, you know, 10 meters of, of marine sediment. Uh, you could have, you know, uh, we, we have found relic coral reefs, for instance, that are, you know, uh, underlying a, a layer of marine sediment that's going to be prevent, that's going to prevent us from actually getting to, uh, you know, any sort of actual late Pleistocene landscape. So, um, we are definitely trying to understand these coastal processes that have happened, understand the landscape processes that, that have happened, um, in order to be able to try to figure out what that late Pleistocene landscape looked like in its entirety. So, you know, the terrestrial portion of the island as it is today, included with that submerged portion of that late Pleistocene landscape. And what we do is we essentially look for uh, we look at the patterning, the archaeological patterning that, that we see currently on the islands and where we're finding these early sites, these 10, 12, 13,000 year old sites on the island itself. And, you know, are they located next to uh, particular uh, tool stone resources? Are they located next to, um, are they located in rock shelters? You know, what are the features across the landscape that are attracting these, you know, mobile hunter-gatherer groups? And so we essentially target those features in the underwater environment and then look, uh, essentially do underwater survey and testing around those, uh, around those environments to see if we can then locate cultural, cultural material or at least locate some sort of terrestrial soil 
that's buried beneath that kind of upper layer of, of marine sediment. And um, the, the manner that we go about doing this uh, is it can be uh, it can be relatively complicated. You we typically use uh, uh, remote sensing equipment, kind of sonar equipment that maps the sea floor, and we take out images uh, from that, and then we basically do scuba survey onto these areas and do underwater testing with um, kind of dredges and and um, a number of different underwater uh, testing machines and coring machines um, to be able to get sediment samples and and hopefully get some, some archaeological samples as well. Right. I, I would remind the people who are listening that one of the big benefits in doing this type of underwater archaeology is, is, is more so than just finding the artifacts, which you, you very, very clearly said is like looking for a needle in a haystack. You can certainly look at landform systems and deposits and soils and those types of elements of the changing landscape that can give you sort of a clue as to what would have been attractive for, for prehistoric people. So you're looking at landscape elements primarily because you probably have a, an easier chance of finding that kind of material and then sort of extrapolating on it onto the the island landscape, which 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 is obviously much more accessible. Is that is that pretty much the situation? That's exactly the situation. Yeah, um, you know, being able to actually locate a, um, a some sort of archaeological material, a culturally modified rock, say a projectile point, or even some sort of uh, archaeological site that's comprised mainly of, say, shells, which is what we typically find um, along the, the coast. The archaeological sites have a lot of uh, shells within them. If you find that in an underwater environment, well, you're finding a lot of shells. So uh, you're going to find shells there anyway. So, you know, we really need to try to uh, locate these kind of landscape features, and really we need a lot of clues to be able to say, you know, yes, what we have found is an archaeological site, um, you know, it's located next to these particular features that we know were used prehistorically. Um, you know, we've located shell with it. We've located, say, some culturally modified um, uh, maybe projectile points or, you know, kind of um, uh, flake um, debris from actually making stone tools and, and that kind of such. And these, these are things that you can locate um, uh, in, in a submerged environment. We personally, um, at this point, are just kind of in the beginnings of our project down in Baja, and have been focusing a lot on really trying to understand the underwater landscape a lot. Uh, but there is other underwater research, uh, particularly in the Gulf of Mexico off of Florida, that has been quite successful in locating um, submerged archaeological sites, not that date to a time period, uh, you know, relevant to the peopling of the New World, um, but, you know, early, early archaeological sites that have been submerged. You know, they find a number of... Um, they have found projectile points and lithic material um, and toolstone uh, debris from from early uh, early tool making. So they've been relatively successful in the Gulf of Mexico uh, using these same these same similar techniques that we're using in the Gulf of California over here on the Pacific Coast. Well, that, that's fascinating information, and and I think one of the the points that we made here is that there's this remarkable interface between how landscapes develop through time and how archaeology and cultures adapt to these changing landscapes and additionally the types of processes that that form these landscapes and the climates associated with them. Uh, Lauren, you made some mention about tsunamis in the past. Uh, what kind of lessons can we learn from prehistoric uh, climate and their relationship to landscape changes that, that will have uh, implications for future planners? Well, I think uh, at least 
speaking from my place here in the Pacific Northwest, we have to always keep in mind that change is normal, that stability of environments and you know seeing things as a status quo, perpetuating that in the future is unlikely. So we're going to see changes perhaps because of global changes in temperature and climate that may be coming on to us in the future. If that happens, of course, sea level might go up. And if that goes up, we're going to have some serious problems because in the past, hunting and gathering societies had easier ways of dealing with this. They could just simply pick up you know, and move relative to rising sea level. And our society has a, has a much bigger challenge in the sense that we've invested very heavily into extremely expensive and complex infrastructure onto places that may not be sustainable for the long run. So I think it would be interesting to have a, a perspective of an interface between planners and you know, geologists, geoarchaeologists, archaeologists that begin to talk about the lessons that we can learn from the past in coastal regions and how the coast has changed dramatically through time and what we might expect uh, for the future. Now for the tsunami, earthquake cycle stuff for the Pacific Northwest, I mean, we can just look at the geologic history. And as I mentioned, it's on average about 600 years. and But the low end is 300 years. So the last one that we had in Northwest was AD 1700. And so we're now in the window of possibility. So it could happen again anytime. Um, but if these kinds of things do happen to us, what we're going to see is we become part of an archaeological record uh, that is a long one on the Oregon coast, at least. So in some coastal towns, if you look beneath the streets of coastal downtown areas, you know, they aren't very high in elevation, you see that there are previous occupations that have been capped multiple times by expanding bays and tsunami sands and things like this. And what do we do? We build right on top of these situations. So we're not that different in terms of people of the past. We keep coming back to these places that may not be sustainable, but we're resilient, if nothing else. And on that quasi ominous optimistic note, we're going to have to we're going to have to close this episode. And in fact, the series on uh, Indiana Jones myth, reality, and 21st century archaeology. I want to thank uh, my guests, Lauren Davis, Matthew Deloria, and Amy Gusick for being such a helpful being such helpful participants in this closing episodes. We will be back in a week or so and start another series of programs and until that time thank you so much for listening and as we emphasize in this particular program remember that your understanding of the past is a guide to a more promising tomorrow. Thanks so much and we'll see you next time. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones Myth Reality and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Tomorrow.